Okay, does everybody have a handout of the sermon notes for today's sermon? If not, just raise your hand and Brother Nolan will get you a copy. We're turning our attention once again to the book of Hebrews. So turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And let's read today uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, I think just 1 through 14 is a, is a good break. It's not a necessary break for the translators to make it, but uh, it, it serves our purposes today. It captures the thought of the preemacy of Christ over all of the angels, so forth and so on. So we'll read chapters, uh, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to return once again to the prologue, verses 1 through 3, with a special attention on the first part of verse 2 today. The word of the Lord says, beginning with verse 1, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and ministers of a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, And the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall wax old, as doth the garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same. And thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Set on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them? who shall be heirs of salvation. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Holy Word. We return today to the book of Hebrews to seek to understand something that is presented to us in the first three verses, and that is the specific way in which God speaks to us. Last week, just by way of a simple recap, we acknowledged that God speaks to us through natural revelation. We went to the Psalms as it taught us that the heavens declare His glory. The stars are as if it were an unwritten, unheard sermon. Natural revelation. All mankind created in the image of God, Romans 5, has as an image bearer of God a conscience. 
and has with a conscience God's law written upon their hearts, even the savage out in the wilderness. However, even though that does not allow someone to stand before God on Judgment Day without excuse because their Creator has spoken to them, their Creator has revealed something to them in natural revelation that He does exist, that there are moral, ethical, absolute rights and wrongs, it doesn't excuse them on the Day of Judgment for denying Him as their Creator. We learn that it took special revelation. It took God coming down, condescending down to mankind in verse 1 through diverse ways, diverse times, and through different people to communicate His plan of salvation, His special revelation of how people who have inherited a sinful, fallen heart from Adam, a disposition, you could say, that is inclined from birth to already want to do evil, how they could be restored, how they could be changed, how they could be made right. And he did that. We, we had the privilege of just walking through verse number 1 in the Old Testament, beginning at the dawn of human history in Genesis 3.15. You guys remember that. And we walked then to Abraham, and then to the prophets Ezekiel, and then Daniel, and then Isaiah, and then Micah. And we just saw how God was, wasn't He? Through dreams, through visions, through oracles unto the prophets. He was doing what? He was speaking. And today, looking once again, with all of that behind us, we want to look and understand something of what the, he, the writer of Hebrews, the inspired writer of Hebrews, is doing today with a continued understanding about God speaking in the first half of verse 2 where he says, um, look with me in your text, verse 2, God has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Now, let's just pause for a moment in reflection of my introduction, and for those of that were here last Sunday, and you heard the message, you know, you're like, yes, I remember all that, what we talked about. Do you guys remember and know that account in the Bible where Jesus, after He was risen from the dead, He was walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of His followers, and they were really kind of down in the dumps because they were expecting, they had, I believe, some misunderstanding about the kingdom of Christ. And they were just thought it was all over. And, and, and in a supernatural way, Jesus was hiding himself from them of revealing who he was. And they're talking and they're talking and he's asking them questions. He knew the answer. And then the text tells us that he began to reveal himself. How? By teaching them from the book of Moses. And so really what Jesus did is much what the writer of Hebrews is doing today with people who were Jews and who had come to faith through this story of God speaking through their fathers and through their prophets. But the power of the Holy Spirit has convinced them that God at the end of the last prophet Micah has once again spoken. All of their countrymen, all of the other Jews, rejected this speech that we're going to learn about today had rejected that once again God was speaking in the days in which they lived. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is wanting to emphasize. He's wanting them to emphasize what we're going to look at today and them to consider the timing of God's revelation and the finality of God's revelation. 
So let's look at verse 2 here. Something about the timing of God's revelation. The writer of Hebrews is wanting to remind these Jewish Christians of the gospel they formerly heard that something is different. Something is different in these last days. That's what's packed in there. He's, he's, he's telling them in these last days God has spoken. I.e., friends, something greatly is different. This is what we first told you when we started telling you about the coming of the Messiah. In fact, when compared to the other portions of this book of Hebrews, and when compared and examined to the other sayings of the apostles and of Jesus Christ Himself, we can safely conclude, as you see in your notes, that the writer of Hebrews, Jesus, and the apostles, in trying to understand something of the significance of these last days, which the writer of Hebrews is talking about, they were all keenly aware, as you see in your notes, that with the coming of Messiah, that is God's Son, that something of a transition in God's eschatological scheme had been initiated. They all understood very well with the coming of Messiah, something was different. Something dealing with all of history. 4,000 years has passed. There was 2,000 years up to Abraham. And from Abraham, I'm giving approximate numbers here, 2,000 years up to Jesus' birth, ministry, and crucifixion. And they all understood, as we're going to have to see in the sample scriptures that I provided to you in your notes, that this meant there was something beginning. There was something in God's eschatological timetable with all of creation that was very significant. We see this very plainly, for example. Look in your notes at Hebrews 8, verses 7 and 8. In the context here, he's describing how the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. But notice what he says. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he, this is God through the prophet Jeremiah, said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the writer of Hebrews understood that in the days to come, whatever that meant, whatever was connected to that, whatever whatever manifestations of the outpouring of God's blessing in those days, there was going to be a new covenant. And when that new covenant happened, God was doing something. The days to come, toward the end of the age, God's final chapter in His book is getting close. But that comes through also, and the other apostles, not just the writer of Hebrews. For instance, look in your sermon notes to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Notice what Peter says. He had this understanding as well. That in the last days, something was different. Something was going on. Beginning in verse 16, Acts 2, the Word of God says, uh, through the mouth of Peter, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He's quoting the prophet Joel 2.28. Now why is that significant? Well, because remember who Peter's talking to and what's the context of him making this statement about the last days. Um, 
It was, you remember all of those that were gathered there on the day of Pentecost when, when the Spirit of God was manifested in a more powerful way. And Peter comes out and the men are speaking that were with him, the other disciples, were speaking in the vernacular language of all of the tradesmen at that port there. And they thought that they were drunk. You remember the story. And what's Peter say? No, 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 friends. Hey, we're not drunk. These are the fulfillment of the last days. And so Peter understood the prophet Joel as in the last days, toward the winding down of God's eschatological timetable, when God is going to do something majorly different that all of our fathers and our prophets have spoken about, this is going to happen. And he's telling that audience, it is here. It has happened. We're not drunk. God is fulfilling in these last days what He's prophesied. Okay? Moving forward. I saw that. I saw this just this week in my own personal devotions from Mark chapter 1, verse 15. This is very early on in Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus understood as well that in His earthly ministry, with His coming as the Messiah, that there was a great shift and a great transition in the eschatological timetable of God. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is stressing here to his audience. Look in your sermon notes, Mark 1.15. In the early teachings of Jesus, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Not the kingdom of God will be at hand or is coming, may come. No, it is is, present tense, at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Therefore, when the writer of Hebrews in our text today, when he speaks this way, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. He wishes to create a purposeful contrast within the minds of His ears, once again, who have already heard this message, And being in complete harmony with all the former prophets that God has used, this messenger used by God to communicate this to Hebrews, he really is seeing history, isn't he? In two ways. The age that he was in and the age that's coming. And something between those two ages is afoot. Something is going on. Is really what he's bringing to the surface. In other words, as you see in your notes... While the prophets pointed, we learned last week, forward unto the last days, in light of just these sample texts, Jesus, His apostles, and clearly the writer of Hebrews, are announcing that the last days were indeed already at hand. They were experiencing living in the last days. That which had been promised was now in the act of being actually fulfilled and realized. So with this in view, we can make only some sense of these scriptures that we just read with this mentioning of the kingdom of God at hand. These last days. The days to come actually happening in in Hebrews 8. We can only make sense of them in two ways. And I, I say make sense of them because when you hear in the Old Testament of this grand, glorious age to come, uh, the, the prophet Jeremiah we just saw, the days to come, the kingdom of Christ announcing the kingdom of God, the kingdom, my kingdom is at hand. We think immediately, don't we, as God's people, 
who are, as we read this morning in Psalms 37, looking around us and seeing the wicked prevail, we immediately think, great, this is all going to get wrapped up. Things are going to get easier. The kingdom of Christ is at hand. God is, this is the last days. Now we finally will be justified and vindicated. His law will prevail in the land, so forth and so on. But that didn't happen. But we just see in the text that they are saying, the last days, we are here. These things are being fulfilled. And here you and I set 2,000 years after these words are written. And what are we saying to ourselves? This is interesting, because I didn't think it was going to look like this. So how can we make sense of these texts? Recognizing that they did understand clearly. We could go to many more texts that they were in the last days in some way that is connected with the age to come. The promises of no more pain and suffering, etc., etc. How do we, Abby, make sense of all of this? Well, let's first consider that there are already realities that have been accomplished. There are already realities that we are experiencing of the age to come here and now. But yet, as you see in your notes, there are also some not yet fulfilled promises. And so what we're trying to do right now is we're just trying to get a real grasp on what the writer of Hebrews is teaching them. And you know what really we're doing? We're getting what you can get all through the Bible, but would have been a great kind of around the, the dinner table with the Apostle Paul. You know, he, he would have wonderfully crafted this for them to see. That the age to come that God is doing right now with the coming of the Messiah has already invaded and broken into your and I's lives. Wow. Get that? He's telling them, look at the prophets, look at the fathers, so forth and so on. And the Spirit of God blessed the gospel message, blessed that revelation that He was given to them, and they believed on the Messiah. And then he starts communicating to them these realities. So let's consider, first of all, the realities that came from the age to come in these last days, which this audience of the Hebrews were experiencing, and you and I experience as well. We're going to do this by simply considering the book of Jeremiah. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. What are some of the already realities that we have in these last days which typify a fulfillment in the age to come. Well, Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 31, is the most natural place for us to go. I say that because the simple reason is that this prophecy of the days to come, this glorious age where a new covenant is going to be fulfilled, it finds its most clearest and its most concentrated explanation to us of what it means, what Jeremiah was talking about, in the book of Hebrews where we're at today. We just read it in Hebrews 8, 7, and 8. When we read Hebrews 8, 7, and 8 just a moment ago, the writer of Hebrews was quoting Jeremiah 31 through 31, 31 through 34 verbatim. Right? So it's just natural for us to go to Jeremiah 31 to say, okay. They understand that the age to come where this new covenant is going to be poured out, which we kind of think in our minds is going to be like the end of all evil and you know, everything is going to be right and good. Um, they would have understood it that way. And, and I kind of understand it that way. But, there's, but, but that's not the case. 
But yet they understood that there were some aspects of the new covenant, the days to come, that were being realized. And so we come to Jeremiah 31. And we want to ask ourselves, what are some things that were prophesied about the days to come in these last days that are already happening and indeed have already taken place? And we walk in these realities all the way, all the time. And when we don't revisit them, when we don't remind ourselves of them, what happens? We begin to, as we said during the scripture readings today, start looking at the size of the problems instead of the reality in which we exist in. Jeremiah 31 through 34. Let's look at it together first. Notice here in verses 31 and 32, the prophet Jeremiah talking about this distant age to come, which we just read in our sample scriptures, are being fulfilled according to how Jesus thought of things, according to how the apostles thought of things, according to how the writer of Hebrews thought of things, this prophecy is fulfilled. So Jeremiah 31, 32, looking forward, behold, he says, the days come. This, we said this last week in our introduction to Hebrews. This is Old Testament language pointing toward the glorious days to come. The age, the, the age that is to come, that God has promised us, so forth and so on, okay? That's how everybody would have understood it. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Now you have it in your notes. Look at what Jesus says about Jeremiah's prophecy that would happen in the days to come. Luke 22.20 The Lord Jesus said, This cup which is poured out for you, it is the new covenant in my blood. So Jeremiah is prophesying about this glorious age to come. And Jesus says, what? My blood is the initiatory moment when this reality begins. So, the days to come, the age to come, something's happening. Something with the coming of Messiah. Something that these first generation Christians who were Jewish and were hearing the gospel were being reminded of that God's moving again. God's doing something. In fact, and through His Son Jesus, He has already done it. This demands that we, along with the original audience, understand that with the shedding of Christ's blood upon the cross, that the last days in some way have begun. That's all we're simply saying. But it's powerful. To be sure, Jeremiah could not see, he could not fully comprehend all the details of the quote-unquote day to come. He just knew that it, that it was connected with the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. He knew that the age to come, this glorious age where God was finally going to fulfill His covenant promises, you know, to just crush the head of stone. He just knew. He, 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 he couldn't see the whole puzzle put together. But he had enough of the pieces of the puzzle to tell him that when the Messiah comes and they're establishing a new covenant, that God has returned. That He has not forsaken or abandoned us. On this side of the cross, we experience this reality. And indeed, it's a blessed reality for us in the New Covenant. Why? Because namely, we know through the blood of Jesus 
through His earthly ministry, what He accomplished in history, we know, brothers and sisters, as you see in your notes, an already reality of the age to come, which we experience now as Christ's church has been accomplished. The promises we no longer think have to still be met for the new covenant to take place. The parameters, the stipulations required for the new covenant to be finally ratified as God pointed to, the prophets, the prophets pointed to, it has been satisfied. So what does that do for us as an already reality in these last days? That should encourage us. Is this, brothers and sisters, God, as we saw last week, was constantly preaching and pointing and directing everyone to the future. God was faithful. He was faithful. He did send the Messiah. He did upon the cross crush the head of the serpent. We will see in coming weeks, He did accomplish salvation for His people, Psalms 37. They do in the Messiah have rest in peace. It's an already reality. I don't have to wait for the glorious eschaton when everything's consummated and Jesus comes back like He returns to experience that. The Holy Spirit, through the powerful communication of the preached Word, opens our heart and hearts, does it not? And we realize that yes, Jesus is real. He accomplished the requirements of the new covenant and it has been done. God has kept His promise. That's an already reality. So that helps us in some sense understand something about the last days. We can taste, we can know, we can affirm and experience this reality. We don't have to wait. So that's something about the last days we just learned. But there's also something we can learn from Jeremiah 31 that remember, the writer of Hebrews and Jesus and everybody else said was fulfilled with Jesus' coming. Look at Jeremiah 31 verse 33. As you see in your notes, we learn also that an already reality we have in these last days, which is a taste of the age to come, is this spiritual birth that organically uh, gives us a love for God's moral law. Verse 33 in Jeremiah 31. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. In the new covenant era, which Jesus has the cornerstone. Again, I keep renunciating this. This is how they understood it. Jesus and all the apostles understood that in the New Covenant era, that there would be a reality that is mentioned here in verse 33. One which you and I are blessed with. In fact, all those who claim an interest or an ownership in the New Covenant will the text see. Look at the text. Verse 33. Everyone who claims ownership and participation in this new covenant will have received from the Lord Himself a sovereign surgery of their heart. The Lord says, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts. Now this is unlike the old covenant. In this prophecy of Jeremiah that Jesus, the apostles, and the writer of Hebrews confirms is happening in their time, in their age, in these last days. Everyone in the covenant will know the Lord. It won't be by birth. It won't be by societal connections or by religious external structures, traditions, and everything of that nature. 
everyone who is in the covenant will by God's sovereign finger have written upon their heart His law. So this is something that's fulfilled. You know why I know? Because the majority of you are here, at least those who are consenting adults, uh, you know, (laughs) so forth and so on, heads of households or whatever, you're here voluntarily. We don't have a a theocracy structure in such a way to where if you're not in church on Sunday, you'll be fined or taxed or go to jail, right? That's evidence, brothers, that the law of God is written upon your hearts. God with His own sovereign finger has come down by the power of His Holy Spirit and He has inscribed upon your heart to not forsake the assembly of the saints, to come together and worship Him in truth and spirit, to take partake of the sacraments. I didn't call you, Brother Cox, this week and threaten you if you don't come to church that, you know, there was going to be consequences. Brother Aaron, you didn't get a call from the governor or the local mayor of your town saying, you know, we noticed you missed church the last couple Sundays and because it's a state church, you're going to get fined if you don't show up this Sunday. You see, this is a reality that we experience now. We don't have to wait to the age to come when King Jesus is riding back on a white, you know, horse and we all say, oh, we better go to church. no. Don't you see what's already been fulfilled? It's a love that's been written upon our hearts, a love for God's law. Do you guys recall a couple weeks ago from Brother Chris's message that he preached from Proverbs 4.23 where he admonished us, watch your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life? I only mentioned that because that's very key to understanding of an experienced reality that we have in the new covenant now that we can say in these last days, has been fulfilled. And that is, God has given us new affections. He has given us a changed heart. That's what's meant here by God's law written upon our hearts. It's to have God's law installed in us by the power of His sovereign Spirit, ruling our convictions, ruling our affections, ruling our words and our actions. We know as God's people, we have a sensitivity to it. Does it mean that we're unable? We looked at this in Psalms 37 with the life of David. Does it mean that we're unable to uh, not depart from that law? No, no, we can't because we still have remaining corruptions in flesh. But the difference is that's an anchor that now I'm sensitive to. And I love it. I don't want to go away from it. Sometimes I do. And God, guess what? In His kindness and His provisions, He gives us a remedy for that. He gives us a remedy to come to Him and repent and seek forgiveness and restoration and change and move forward, not give up, etc., etc., you see. This is just the second reality that we have in these last days as we're trying to understand the significance of it that is a fulfillment of what everyone was saying that was the age to come that's experiencing now, here and now. Let's look at the third one here in verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. He says... They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the last of them, even unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. This, you see in your notes, I'm titling a reality that we experience now is the abundance of gospel revelation. The prophet Jeremiah is communicating that in this promised new covenant era, which Jesus has already informed us began with his own life, especially the sacrifice of his blood, It will be a time of unbridled, abundant revelation of the gospel truth unlike ever before dispensed by God through the prophets. That there will be no need for future prophets. 
to interpret for men obscure, vague, or hidden messages conveyed through types and shadows. A child with just basic comprehension can be given now a copy of the Bible. Read it from front to back. And when they get there, they're not going to need a prophet to explain to them how to become born again. In the New Covenant era, through the Son speaking, through the foundation of the apostles being established and the church moving forward from there, there's an abundance of revelation. This doesn't mean that there's no need for teachers in the church. That doesn't mean that. What it means is that in the fulfillment of this new covenant, the abundance of revelation is going to be so clear that the prophets are no longer needed. And isn't that exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying? In a way, we're going to see in a moment in verse number 2. In the former days, God spoke in these ways. But in these last days, with finality, clarity, and certainty, He's spoken through His Son in the Gospel. This new covenant blessing that you and I are experiencing now as the church of Christ, it comes through, look in your notes, very clearly in 1 John 2.27. The anointing which ye have received of Him abides in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Levi, if a man was on an island with nothing but his Bible, the Spirit of God would use his word to save that man, and that man would not need Pastor Doug, he wouldn't need your daddy, he wouldn't need you to explain to him how to be saved, would he? That's what First John is saying there. The Spirit of God has done this in you, and the Spirit of God will teach you, and the Spirit of God will continue work on you, and you shall continue to abide in Christ. But there's a fourth already reality that we are experiencing this taste of the age to come in our own day and age as new covenant believers prophesied by Jeremiah, confirmed by Jesus and the other apostles. Look with me at verse 34. God promises, oh, and I hope you get a taste of this and are reminded of the basic gospel promise here that is fulfilled in the new covenant through particularly the work of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. God says, I will forgive their iniquity Oh, and don't miss this, brothers. I will remember their sins no more. This is the chief experience reality we have as New Covenant members that has been accomplished in what Jeremiah said was the age to come, the days to come, that the writer of Hebrews is saying in these last days, we have experienced. While certainly... Church, there was forgiveness of sin under the former biblical covenants. Although the blood of Christ was not then actually shed for them, under all of those covenantal arrangements, Christ's blood, a pure sacrifice, a required condition to fully ratify the new covenant, could only at best be pointed to by the types and shadows. They cannot forgive sin. The writer of Hebrews is going to get to this later on in his message. They had to come back, didn't they, brother? Year after year after year, while the sacrifices pointed 
to what prophet Jeremiah and other prophets said would someday occur to where the Messiah would remove our sins forevermore. In Him was a perfect sacrifice. As a result of bringing those sacrifices year after year, it demonstrated that the Old Covenant was inferior to that which was being pointed to. That Jesus and the apostles said has been accomplished and is a reality for you and I and for the audience here of Hebrews. There was a remembrance of sin made every year, leaving a majority of the Old Covenant participants in want of a clear, and listen to this, a comfortable pardon from God and His fierce wrath. They can never truly have complete peace. While there was, we know, in some of the great saints of the Old Covenant who tasted the fruits of faith in the promised Messiah, who had a great degree of revelation given to them, Nolan, none of them had what you and I have, which is the complete objective truth that God, through the words of Christ, has accomplished the final rest and purging of our iniquities forevermore at the cross. Do you believe that Jesus has forgiven you of all of your sins at the cross? Or are you guilty, am I guilty at times, of wanting to continue to bring God's sacrifices because I don't really believe that He has kept His new covenant promises as Jeremiah promised and that Jesus said He fulfilled. Believe the words of Jeremiah. Believe the confirmed words of Christ. That God has purged us of our iniquities and He will remember them no more. John Gill, when referring to our assurance and our final peace with God because of this promise to never remember our sins no more, something that was pointed to, that was only going to be realized in the age to come, but now we understand with the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that it actually happened. You know, we don't have to wait for that to happen. Listen to what he says. He says, this assurance and the promised fulfillment of Jeremiah, this peace that it brings, this reality that it connects us with, he says, quote, is the staple blessing of the new covenant and the evidence of all the rest that it affords us. We have that now. They didn't have that. Now prior to moving forward, and in light of these four already realities we're calling them, which we just minimally reviewed, allow us to properly conclude what you see in your notes. That when the writer of Hebrews, Jesus, and the apostles speak of the last days, they understood the last days as having begun starting with Jesus' earthly ministry particularly the shedding of his blood. And so the next time you're at a family get-together and someone's been watching, you know, the latest, greatest modern-day prophet, uh, they've been watching the latest, greatest television prophet, right? And uh, they're like, uh, what's his face? Uh, Oh, Baker. The guy Baker. Tammy and whatever Baker. I forget his name now. But, you you know, he got discredited as being a false prophet. And now he's... My, my poor aunt, my poor aunt deceived about this, is following this guy and he's out in the desert somewhere trying to sell survival food and prepper food. But he said, the last days are coming. Well, guess what, Mr. Baker? 
According to the apostles, Jesus and the writer of Hebrews, the last days have been here for a long time with the shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ's blood. With that better understanding of what is meant by this phrase here in verse number 2, these last days, there's another aspect that Scripture teaches us, and it's this. While we certainly are blessed to know and experience these already realities, while we know that the last days and our understanding of the last days, biblically speaking, means that the promised eschaton glorious age to come is already here and we're experiencing a little bit, we still have a tension, don't we? We mentioned it earlier to where it seems as though a lot of the promises of the days to come have yet been fulfilled. And so, what are those? Well, these are the not yet promises that we're still waiting for, we're still hoping in. First, as you see in your notes, a freedom from this world. There will be, at the great consummation, at Jesus' second return, a freedom from this world. Who in here is not still at times tempted of the world? And you wish to be free from it. I mean, there's so many things in this world system that's constantly dangling a carrot of deception and lies in front of you. And you want to be free, don't you? Well, guess what, brothers and sisters? Keep looking for the return of Jesus when we will no longer have those struggles. 1 Corinthians 7.31, I'm not going to read all these for the sake of time, but it says that there's a promise that the present form of this world is, already is, passing away. There's not going to be any more war between the spirit and the flesh. But guess what? You are never, we talked about this in the book of Ephesians, on this side of glory, until the consummation, this not yet promised is something we all still long for, a complete freedom from the battle between the spirit and the flesh. Amen? I know I am. But up until that point, we're not guaranteed it. Some of us are growing very weary because of the battle. And we're trying to check out. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, this is something that is a not yet promise. You're not going to get it all here right now. But God's given you enough in, in, in the first four points we made in the already experienced realities. He's given you enough of it, hasn't He? He's written His law in your heart. You know you love Him. You know when you wake up every morning, you can count your blessings one by one in Christ. Oh, but still, we look unto that not yet reality of being freed from this flesh. What about also the not yet reality of the end of physical sickness, suffering and pain as mentioned in Revelations 21.4 and 1 Corinthians 15.26 when that last enemy known as death, physical death that is, is finally destroyed. And we have to read this one because this is the one this is the one that no matter how hard things get, you come back to again and again. And you're so looking forward to it. And that is the not yet promise of seeing Jesus physically. Seeing Him physically. John 14, 2-3, this promise that Jesus gives us, this not yet been fulfilled, but will be someday, brothers and sisters, don't lose hope. In my Father's house, He said, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, have, I would have told you if it were not so. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So then with these not yet promises considered alongside the former already realities we know, that we are rightly dividing and handling the Word of God when we conclude that the witness of Scripture regarding what is meant in these last days is simply this. 
They began with Jesus' incarnation, His first appearance, and they will end these last days with Jesus' second or final appearance. I know that was a great exercise to give you that simple, you know, compact version, but we have to know, especially when dealing with these matters of eschatological implications and end times and redemptive histories and prophecies, we have to do the homework, don't we? Well, I mean, we have to truck through this stuff to say, yes, we rightly and faithfully handled the Word of God. The last days are beginning with Jesus, and they're going to end with a second appearance. We're in the last days right now. We've been in the last days. There is something regarding our text today that further substantiates our conclusion regarding the phrase last days, which is this, and you have in your notes. There's something else in our text today that further substantiates that we're on the right track. And it's this. The inspired writer of Hebrews, he purposefully contrasts the former revelations of God through the prophets with those by his son to stress the point that God has nothing else to reveal in these last days. So now this leads us into our second heading that we know we're on the right track when we consider how the writer himself is purposefully contrasting then and now to understand that the last days are a taste of the age to come, the great glorious consummation. Listen to a quote as we begin to consider the finality of God's revelation in these last days, which further substantiates our conviction that we've rightly handled the Word of God, that you and I are in the last days, tasting sweet realities, but yet hoping for things to be finally fulfilled. Listen to this quote regarding the former revelations of God in time past by Dr. Paul Robert Martin. He said, quote, All of those things formerly revealed were partial. They were anticipatory utterances all leading to the consummative speaking of God and His Son, mentioned in verse 2. Though all these revelations were true, none of them were final. Not even all of them put together comprised all that God had determined and finally to say. In a word, he continues to say, this first epic of God's speaking was marked by incompleteness, or you could say anticipation. In fact, the focus, end quote, In fact, the focus upon previous revelations being now by God's Son certainly settled, being complete and final, is a major part of the rhetorical structure that the the inspired writer uses to convince them that God has not only spoken these last days, but in His Son, everything's fulfilled. There's nothing else to be said, and let us rejoice in Him. But how does he go about convincing them of this certain finality of God speaking in these last days? And that there's not somehow a future point where God's going to speak again. Since we already know there's still some things yet to be fulfilled, right, in these last days to consummate and bring in the age to come. He wants to be certain that we are not left hanging understanding that maybe another prophet's going to come as it gets closer to that point when Jesus returns. You see, Uh, he wants us to understand that in Jesus, everything has been finalized and said and revealed with certainty. How does he do that? He does it in several ways, as you see in your notes. First of all, he does it with drawing our attention to the character and the nature of the Son himself. Son here in verse number 2, as will become much more clear in the weeks to come, it refers to Christ's divine status as the only begotten Son of God. Meaning that Jesus is uniquely God's only Son. 
There is not other sons who share the essential qualities of power, glory, and grandeur of the Father as does Jesus the Son. And as you see in your notes then, recognizing that, as he says in these last days, Levi, he has spoken to us by his Son. He's pointing us to the character of the Son. And that helps us to substantiate that whatever is being said by the Son has to carry with it some great weight of authority, some great weight of certainty, some great weight of finality. Okay? This alone, the character of the Son in whom God has spoken, does much more than suggest that His revelation, what He speaks, what He says, it does much more than suggest His revelation and His ministry is final. It indeed requires we understand it as final, complete revelation to us. Nothing can be added to the Word of the Son. It is God's revelation to us through His only unique begotten Son. Who's going to add to Jesus' words? And so the nature and the character of the sons is lifted up before their eyes in such a way that they immediately think, aha, God didn't send another prophet. He didn't send another teacher. He didn't send another dream or whatever, a judge or what. He sent His Son. And so whatever revelation comes through the Son, it would have carried in their mind the understanding that it was bringing a closure to God's revelation and His plan for them. The superiority of Jesus as God's own Son is intended to emphasize the altogether different category of relationship that lie between God the Father and the prophets and His own unique Son. This reference to Jesus as Son is only a glimpse for what's going to follow as we're going to see in verse 3 in the coming weeks where the phrase says that this was the express image of the Father's person. So he's just, he's just right here in verse number 2. Um, helping us to understand the uniqueness of the last days in which the, the audience of the Hebrews had, were part of, you and I are part of. He, he just gives us a glimpse that this is God's only Son to demonstrate that His revelation in Him is final. But then He's going to expand that more, this messenger, the Son, later on. Jesus was different from all those who came before Him. If he had been merely another prophet in a long line of prophets, but not distinguished from them in his quality, in his uniqueness, then all of us would be warranted in looking and listening for other prophets. Right? And isn't that what some people are doing right now? People are, what? Quick to run to some modern day prophet. And really when they do that, this is very serious. They are impinging upon the very voice and revelation of God through the Son, the final revelation to bring God's will, plan, uh, 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 you know, the, the initiatory beginning of the age to come into time, space, and history. Yeah, God, I know you gave us your Son basically, but we, we need to hear something else. We need to hear something else about the timing, about a certain people group in the Middle East about a certain this, a certain that. There's always these prophets that are trying to bring another word or another revelation from God. It's sinful, beloved. It's wicked. And if you have any family members with love and gentleness, meekness, I'm not necessarily displaying that right now. I understand that. But with love, gentleness, meekness, Galatians 6.1, take them to Hebrews and say, dear family member, dear co-worker, God has spoken to us through His Son. We're in these last days now. Not only is the nature of the Son unique in its kind, also the revelations that God spoke through Him also must be regarded 
as superior, not just in their degree, but in their nature. This was God's Son speaking. Consider how John says, I have my notes here, how Jesus, the Word, became flesh. He goes on to describe um, in other portions of Scripture found in the writings of the, the Apostle Paul that Christ dwelled amongst us with all fullness of, godly bodily, uh, of Godhead bodily. Or as the Father Himself is recorded in Luke 9.35, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Listen to Him. The Word did not become flesh as Paul uh, Martin, Dr., Dr. Paul Martin says, He didn't just become flesh to deliver a message about the way of salvation or about the truth or about God or about eternal life or about the beginning of things, the end of things. Jesus himself was the message. To help flesh that out, listen to these scriptures. Jesus kept referring to himself as I am. John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Revelations 20-13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is who God's only Son was when He comes to reveal the message from God the Father. And all of that, together, it concludes what? Jesus is saying, I am. The revelations have ended with me. The Puritan John Owen in his commentary of Hebrews put it like this. As this was the last way and means that God ever designed for the discovery or knowledge of himself as to the worship and obedience which he requires, so the person by whom he that accomplished this work makes it indispensably necessary that it be all absolute and perfect from which nothing can be taken and to which nothing must be added. The very nature of Jesus' character as God's own unique Son emphasizes the fact that this last revelation in the time we're in was authoritative, certain, and final. But then there's another interesting aspect that substantiates our understanding of the last times or the last days further in how the Greek phrase is used. And I'm not going to totally exasperate you with this, but it's important you understand it. The Greek phrase here, translated in our authorized version, hath in these last days spoken, some of your modern translation will say has spoken, is used by the inspired writer to emphasize the finality of God's special revelation by His Son in these last days. Now, Greek scholars inform us, I'm certainly not one, that the Greek in this text, it's what's called in the eros tense. Now, the eros tense of Greek is simply saying it's describing a subject that is taking place, a single subject, not a, a multiple set of subjects, uh, not a subject that is dependent upon something else happening to make it complete. But Greek scholars say when, 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 when the inspired writer phrases the Greek this way, it, he has spoken. He's saying in the eros tense, this is something that needs nothing else. And so with that understanding, we do see that further does what? It substantiates our understanding that in Jesus, 
God's revelation was final. And of course, that's closely connected to why the writer of Hebrews says in these last days, there's no future last days. There's no future revelations needed. We're just trying to get our feet planted solidly on the significance today of what the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to communicate to us as new covenant recipients. This teaches us then, as you see in your notes, under the Greek phrase used, while the inspired writer was penning this message, he purposefully uses this phrase, has spoken in the original tongue, to clearly communicate that in the Son, God's revelation is not continual. God's revelation is not ongoing. God's revelation in His Son was final and finished. In other words, the writer did not expect new information from God beyond what already was spoken by God's Son. Or as one commentator put it, the story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ, but there's no progression after Christ. And many people are running around today wanting further revelation a further word, some other progressive understanding from God, and they're not even fully appreciating or realizing what the Father has already revealed to them in Jesus. Muddying the waters, making things totally unnecessarily complicated. Because why, beloved? They're wrestling with the tension of some things they already know to be true, but the things that are not yet fully fulfilled. And so they get all sidetracked. But there's another thing, thirdly, that gives us confidence that we are handling rightly the Word of God and considering that we are in the last days with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Is Notice that the writer of Hebrews, you've seen your notes, gives no qualifications given to God's revelation in His Son. You see, in the text it says, God at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past under the fathers. He has, in these last days, spoken to us by His Son. So there's and you could see in the, in the first verse some sort of um, qualification of it. He did that, but he has now spoken in the last son. Well, that doesn't follow in verse number two after him speaking through his son. There is no, he has spoken in his son and will again. He has spoken in his son, but yet it remains. You don't see any of that, right? Well, that lack of limiting qualification further points to God's revelation, His Son is final. John Brown in his Geneva series on, the, on, on the, uh, his commentaries on Hebrews says this, There is nothing in the description of the final gospel revelation in the Son that can be described as the former revelations in the prophets, such as at different times and in different manners. You can't say that, can you, about the revelation of the gospel through Jesus Christ and His apostles. It wasn't progressive. There wasn't a time where it was going to kind of just firmly be rolled out. No, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Don't get much more clear than that. It didn't have to be progressive. I'm here. I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Repent and believe. The kingdom is at hand. It was final. It was communicated clearly. This lack of qualification upon or against God's revelation by His Son in verse 2 it serves, listen closely, as an unspoken but nonetheless powerful testimony of the final and consummate nature of the revelation of Jesus Christ the Son. We have everything in Jesus, guys. Lastly, notice, I told you this in our introduction last week, 
that Greek scholars tell us that whoever wrote Hebrews, while we can't be definitively certain who did it, they were very gifted in the use of rhetoric. Uh, this is persuasive style of writing, persuasive style of argumentation. Now, lest we get off track with understanding of the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word, meaning that the Holy Spirit's actually given this author the very words to write, and we put too much credit in the author. Understand, though, that God uniquely uses an individual who has, what, studied logic. He has studied rhetoric. So everybody in here still in school, get your school down pat to the glory of God. God needs vessels who understand grammar, uh, knows how to write, knows how to do arithmetic, science, and so on. And, 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 and he prepares you, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I'm looking at all the young people in the church today. Uh, we pray this often in our family worship, you know. Pray for the children and the homeschooling. That they remind themselves that this isn't just going through the motions. I'm being fitted. I'm being sharpened. To what? To be used for the glory of God. And so here you have the writer of Hebrews utilizing something in his past the Holy Spirit giving the words to do what? Use rhetorical structure to emphasize what you and I are trying to ascertain. Are we really on the right track that we're in the last days? How does he do it? Well, by the very structure of how he phrases verses 1 and 2. Look in your notes. He says in verse 1, In time past. This denotes in their minds, the original audience, and a time, you could say an epic of revelation that has been passed, it's been completed as compared to the time that they lived in, which is the time in which Jesus is speaking. And then he says in verse 2, but in these last days, well, immediately in their minds, they would have understood that as, oh, those things in times past are being fulfilled now. I mean, do you see the, the rhetorical structure that he does to try to convey in their minds what you and I are trying to uh, ascertain whether or not we're on the right ground. That was then, and this is now, in the last days. They would have thought in their mind, of course. Closely related to our heading, first heading of the day, the timing of God's revelation. Listen, the rhetorical structure presented in these two verses, it leads us to understand that the writer of Hebrews believed himself to be living in the last days which the prophets had before was spoken about, days which were marked by the appearing of the Messiah, and more to the point, God's final revelation in the current age through the Messiah. And so, as he's writing this to this audience, using this rhetorical structure, pointing them backwards, and then saying, but he has spoken in these last days, using the arrow tense of the Greek, he's rhetorically structuring it to where his audience would have naturally gotten the point that I've spent 45 minutes now trying to labor that I know is the point of the writer, that yes, this is the fulfillment of the age to come beginning right now in the last days. So he's used what? He's used the nature and the character of who the Son is. He's used what? He's used also, um, losing my points here, he used the, the arrows tense of the Greek. He's used the qualifications, the lack of qualifications in the revelation of the Son. And he's using this rhetorical structure of, of phraseology to convince them that the gospel you heard when we first come to you about what the fathers and the prophets promised is being realized now in our day and age. And all of them, when they got to verse 1 and 2, reading in this prologue, would have been like, yes, I needed reminded of that. I needed reminded of that. 
We're getting so much pressure. You remember last week in our introduction of the context in which Hebrews is written in. We're getting so much pressure from the world around us and from the Jewish community around us to begin to compromise and to begin to blend. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we just got to give an inch, just a little inch. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm taking you back to realize that in Jesus there's been a final revelation. Don't start going backwards to those old traditions. Now, all during this series, we're going to have to be like, well, how does that draw a parallel for me? I'm not trying to go sacrifice goats and go back to Old Testament rituals. No, but, but, apply it this way. Upon hearing the gospel, the Spirit of God, if you confess Christ with your lips, going back to the aspect of the fulfilled uh, reality of the new covenant that many of you here today voluntarily, and I'm guessing you're here because of what Christ has done in your life, once in your life, you, you, you confessed Christ. Are you trying to return back to sacrifice Christ again? Are you trying to put Him upon the cross again? He has spoken to you. God has shown you the truth, the objective truth and the fulfillment of the covenant that He will not remember your iniquities anymore. And as we said last week, those promises... They don't promote presumption. A true child of God doesn't take that wonderful reality in these last days, tasting the age to come already here and now, and say, oh, let me go live like a heathen. Just as the warning passages don't rob you of the assurance of what God has promised in the prophet of Isaiah and the God who never changes, who will forget your sins as far as these from the West, He's still the same God. That's a good application. Well, in conclusion, in the Son, God has spoken His full and final word. All that which was, but only types and shadows, has given way now to the great reality to which they all pointed to. God has spoken in His Son, Jesus. And by speaking in this way, He has set aside, which will become the argument of this message to the Hebrew Christians. He has set aside the Old Covenant He has now fully revealed the promised new covenant in His Son. No longer will God meet with His people in the temple at Jerusalem. No longer will He require Mosaic sacrifices. No longer may the Levitical priest minister before Him on the the part of His people because there's a greater priest than they, the Lord Jesus. Three points of application you see in your notes before we end with the word of prayer. In Jesus, beloved, We have been given the final word from the Lord. May we resist the temptation of searching for the next quote-unquote, I call it spiritual fix, whether it be on the internet, TV, or some other co-workers or Christian acquaintance you know who got some kind of special word from the Lord regarding the last days. Let us be careful about that. Number two, to claim the validity of modern day prophets and or those who say the Lord is directly communicating something to them is to deny the distinct position and how serious this is, how flippantly it's handled, is to deny the distinct position and the work that God has placed on King Jesus. Pastor Justin Surface at a family get-together Friday said he was invited to a... um, community prayer meeting that was being kicked off by a non-denominational Christian church down in Edinburgh, one of the larger ones. 
he's a pastor of a Baptist church. Um, I, I don't know, you know, they're, they're, they're a small Baptist church. And he said, so, I, you know, I, he says, it seemed like this brother was pretty conservative, evangelical guy. I wanted to go and we need to, as pastors and communities, get together and pray them all about it. He goes, and uh, we were about 30, 45 minutes into it. And the next thing you know, he said, it became, it became complete chaos. He goes, the lady sitting next to me scared me half to death. He goes, people are talking and he goes, I believe demonic languages, can't understand nothing, just complete chaos. He goes, even if you wanted, and I want to be charitable here to the Christians who, do, who still believe in the continuation of supernatural gifts, um, Pastor Justin and I would, I, would, I would amen this. He said, even if you want to say there's a continuation of some angelic language, there's order according to that. There's supposed to be an interpreter. There's supposed to be so forth and so forth. I don't believe that's a valid interpretation, but I'm just saying, you know, you can try to meet these people halfway, right? He goes, it was complete chaos. He goes, this lady reaches over to me, grabs me by the arm. He goes, her look and her eyes scared me half to death and said, you're going to receive visions and dreams and a word from God, blah, 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 blah. And he's like just stunned, you know? Well, what do you need to say? Oh, dear sister, you need to pat her on the back and say, I've already got the word from the Lord, from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been inscripturated by His Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture. Why don't we go look at that and see what it says about all the stuff that's going on in this room today? Are we really the people of God? You know, that kind of activity, it's a reproach upon the distinct, crown, right position that the Father has placed on the Son who finally had spoken. When you get in those contexts like that, I, I, I tell you, i got to really pray for patience. It's like, people, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. It saddens the Lord Jesus. It saddens the Father when the church conducts themselves like that. Thirdly and lastly, as New Covenant believers... We do, in fact, according to these verses, if you get anything out of this long exposition in the last days, all that's talking, here it is. We as new covenant believers do, in fact, according to these verses, stand in a privileged position in contrast to those that were under the old covenant. And what ought this to do for us? You see it in your notes. It ought to humble us and cause in us a delight. When's the last time you've had a delight being a Christian in the New Covenant? It ought to cause in us a delight as recipients of God's revelation, final revelation by His Son. What a wonderful thought to come to the Lord's Supper here in a moment. Amen? As New Covenant believers, friends, God has brought us in the last days in this last period, however long it's going to be, He made sure that He rescued you and me. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's go to Him in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do now pray that You would take all things that have been said and, O oh Lord, protect us from any errors. Give us a zeal, Lord, and a thirst to learn more of these precious truths that we already now have in your revelation to us, your final revelation that's been given to us through thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would spark within us a great delight, a great joy and zeal of knowing that we in these last days have been brought into your family. And Lord, by all means, 
if there is anyone amongst us today, as we covered those already yet realities that your church experiences, cannot say with confidence, Lord, that they themselves are experiencing those realities. May the power of your Spirit use the words today of this message, the promises of the prophet Jeremiah, of what would be accomplished in the new covenant, and the very words of Jesus Christ, that in his blood it is available to them. I pray, O Father, that that unforgiven sinner would find repentance, and that you would grant them new eyes to see, bring them to the cross of Christ, and may they have the bread of life, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen.